a Podcast One production. Name calling, throwing tantrums, lying, making outrageous claims. Seriously, if my kids acted like this, they'd be grounded for months. Australia's politicians, why are they acting this way? What are they actually trying to achieve? Is our political system to blame or is it all a beat-up and we're just too easily outraged? I'm Adam Peacock and that's what I'm trying to find out in this series because to figure out how we got here, we need to understand our parliamentary system and to do that, we have to go back to the beginning. In the beginning, well, actually, just the beginning of Australia's political system as we know it, 1901, Federation, when Australia became masters of our own destiny as one and the framework of Australian politics in which everything exists now was set. My guest teaches Australian politics at Boston University. Dr. Keith Souter, Managing Director, Global Directors Think Tank. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Adam. Tell us, what is the system that we use in Australian politics and is it unique by world standards? Not exactly unique, but it is unusual. Uh, So it's a parliamentary system, which means the power comes up through a, a parliamentary system as distinct from, say, a presidential system. So in a presidential system, people vote for the president, as in the United States. Uh, in our system, you vote for your local member of parliament and the Commonwealth Parliament, and then he or she will then determine who becomes prime minister if they are in the majority party. If they're not in the majority party, then they become the opposition. The worry that I have, a lot of Australians don't seem to understand that we still are governed by a parliamentary system of government and yet we have a presidential system of politics. In other words, that our presidential system of politics means we focus a lot on individuals, on personalities, on the foible of politicians, but we actually have a parliamentary system of government. And that's a very different sort of uh, animal entirely. The one that we've got in Australia is essentially a, a blending of both the United States and the United Kingdom. And some people call it the Washminster system of government. So it's Washington and Westminster. So Washington, in terms of the House of Representatives and the Senate, two houses. But it also comes out of Westminster because of the role of the Prime Minister and the role of responsible government. It's a government that is responsible to the House of, well, in our case, House of Representatives, or it could be the House of Commons. Was it a big call back in 1901 to just not totally go away or divert somewhat from our roots, which were British, and and go away from what the British had and and adopt this hybrid. Yes, well, there was quite a lead-up to the 1901 decision for federation. Australia is unique in that it's the only place in the world where people voted for their own constitution. So if you look at the American constitution, 1787, that was done by a group of uh, individuals meeting in Philadelphia And then you got, for those who wanted to, states who would then ratify and join the uh, union. In our case, there was one national vote which secured the adoption of the Constitution. The problem for the people creating the Constitution is that we had already got a network of flourishing colonies, or what we would now call states. So New South Wales obviously goes back to 1788. And then you get Victoria, you get South Australia, etc., all slightly different in the way they operate. So that, for example, New South Wales and Tasmania had convict origins, whereas South Australia never had convicts. They came at it completely differently, uh, different political philosophy. So the challenge really for the people trying to create a federation 
was how do you bring together people who come out of different political traditions? Do we even need a federation? Could we have continued with this giant continent being governed by separate entities? Six different countries. Yeah. Europe's about the same size, got a variety of countries. Uh, Western Australia, you know, at one point in the 1930s almost broke away from the federation and you still get calls from locals saying we've got to get out of that, but all our money is going over east, we do the work and they're <laughs> the ones who get the money. So it is interesting to note that... Um, Creating a constitution was a unique activity in itself in the sense that we were drawing ideas from a variety of different political systems, but particularly the UK and the United States. In your opinion, did they get it right in drawing up this constitution, not only for then, but the future, what is now? No one is ever satisfied with whatever constitution they've got. So in the case of the United States, for example, they adopted their constitution in 1787, or at least negotiated it then, and then realised they really hadn't dealt with the whole question of abuse of power. So they then have a Bill of Rights, uh, which then gets attached to the, the Constitution, and they periodically amend their Constitution. We in Australia have had a go at amending constitutions. It turns out to be very difficult to be able to do that. We've not had a successful referendum for half a century. The last one was the one on Indigenous peoples in 1967. So it's a document that is always lagging behind the time, particularly nowadays. We're living through a period of rapid change and science and other developments always run ahead of the political and legal system. So is it fine? I think people have to work together to make it succeed. We're very lucky in Australia that on the one hand, people think we're fairly chaotic because we change our prime ministers so frequently, or at least have done in the last 10 years. Uh, but at the same time, we are the wonder down under, according to the magazine The Economist, published in London, because we have had 28 years of consecutive economic growth, the longest period of economic growth in the history of the Western world, which goes back to 1750 when records began. So Australia is clearly succeeding as a country with or without the politicians. So we have an efficient part of this country that manages to keep us on an even keel, even if the politicians keep falling out among themselves. And that's the amazing thing, because I just get so frustrated clicking on the, the television, and I know you're not a big TV watcher, but getting all that information about uh, all this vitriol around politics, mm. and was it always there? Was this yes. always a problem in Australian politics? Problem. Well, not only a problem in Australian politics, you go all the way back to classical Greece, where people talk about democracy. It's worth bearing in mind that in classical Greece, two and a half thousand years ago, when they invented democracy, they also invented a thing called philosophy. And it's interesting, the world's leading philosopher, Socrates, was a critic of democracy because he said, how can you have a group of people in those days, property-owning white adult males, making decisions uh, on issues of which they have little knowledge? Hmm. And that's continuing to be a problem. Sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> it's still the situation for this day. You know, you ask the average person out on the street a detailed question and the chances are you'd be quite horrified by their lack of information on this. Does the system that we have work as well as other systems, along the lines of what we were saying there about Socrates and his thoughts all those years ago, thinking about life in a beautiful Greek sunny day, same for the modern day as well. Did we get our system right and was there a better option that we maybe should have taken all those years ago? 
Um, I'm not sure what better option was around because obviously you were having people drafting a constitution who grew up within the British system. And so they would have been influenced by the British system and also because they were aware of the American system. They were the two obvious flourishing ones. What we could have done is to have created a, democ- um, a dictatorship on German lines. Uh, the Germans had not yet invented democracy in their own country. So we could have become far more authoritarian. I pick that up today, actually, when I'm talking to younger people who say, why can't we have a system like China? where you don't waste time on political debates. You know five years in advance who your leader is going to be. In fact, it's even longer now. President Xi is decided he's going to be a person who will be in power for life. For as long as he wants. As long as he wants. The same as as in Russia. But it gives you stability. It means you can focus on long-term issues. The problem which Socrates found out two and a half thousand years ago and which you can see in today's media is that politicians are very short-term in their thinking. And so if you're running a a dictatorship, you're not that worried about immediate issues because you don't have an opposition that may try to challenge you. President Xi must laugh his head off about what's going on down here with the (laughs) the It's the warning I always give to people. You know, when you look at the chaos in the UK or the United States, just think of the Chinese rubbing their hands with glee that their potential competitors are falling around in disarray. But... Let me just, I also issue the warning that if you look back at the three major political systems of the 20th century, so you had communism, fascism, and liberalism. Communism failed in 1991. In the case of um, fascist dictatorships, they both went down, particularly Italy and Germany and Japan, all disappeared in 1945. Liberalism managed to survive. Democracy has something about it which enables it to continue to stumble along. Okay, it's not efficient, it's not clean, it's not nice to look at, but it somehow manages to survive. Let me just say Bismarck, the German leader, 120-odd years ago, said that there are two things that you should never see being made. One is sausages, the other one is public policy. (laughs) So even in that German dictatorship, it was still warning people about how messy... German politics could be. Yeah, and the last three months of Australian politics as well, or, or a little <laughs> bit longer. Back to our system, did we get something wrong in the setup of it that did allow, and, and I know you say that we get confused about the presidential system and the Prime Minister isn't what we think he or she is, it's just more a figurehead and elected by delegation who have got all the power, but did we get it wrong in the setup that this was allowed to happen? Because it does create a bit of confusion around the place when we seem to be changing all the time? Well, I think if there is confusion, it's because people don't understand the system. Uh, You could say the same about Great Britain itself. Margaret Thatcher never lost an election, but she was sacked by her own colleagues who were just sick of her way of doing business. But she was never sacked by the general public. You can do that in a parliamentary system. Now, if people are confused, it's because they're just not keeping themselves well-informed. And if they're relying on the media, then all they're going to be getting is a lot of colour and movement, but not necessarily hard information. And the reason for that, of course, the media would say is, look, we have to attract viewers or listeners or readers, and they really don't want to have substantive information. They want to be entertained. Remember, the top 20 TV programmes in Australia, 17 are on sport, three are on cooking. So my current affairs programmes don't get a look in. 
the Anglo-American poet T.S. Eliot said that humanity can only bear a little reality. And I think that's quite true. We want to be entertained. We want to be diverted. We don't want to have long, boring expositions of politics. So when a person like Robert Menzies comes along and governs or is the Prime Minister for the amount of time that he is in Australia, not just years but decades, is he doing that in spite of the system that we have that was set up in 1901? No, he used that system. He used to meet with uh, what were called the Seven Dwarfs. In other words, they're all short men. Not that he was particularly tall, but these were people like Nugget Coombs. He would meet with the senior public servants once a year and say, I'm I'm leaving the running of Australia to you. This is the deep state, as President Trump would call it. Didn't meddle. Didn't meddle. And he left it to the experts to continue to run the country. Is there an ability to what we have set up, our political system in Australia, for people to meddle too much? I think so. And that's the worry that I have with politicians. That If politicians are just simply uh, carrying out sort of fringe activities, entertaining us all, that's fine. The problem is that when politicians get involved in a really substantive item, they can mess things up. I'll give you an example. I was involved with as a, a writer at the Board of Studies producing a course, a new type of course, Culture, Societies and Identities in the year 2000. It had gone through all the official channels, signed off by the previous Minister for Education, went through all the official channels and then at the very last minute we get a change of minister, a new minister comes in and he decides, no, I'll cancel the course. So this is a project on which a lot of us have been working for several months and yet on this whim of a new minister decides to cancel the course. And, of course, if if you think back to the whole issue of identity politics at the moment, I think it would have been very useful for New South Wales school children to learn about that. So there, there is that risk that politicians can actually interfere too much and actually do harm. Menzies has great skills that he left it to others to try to run the country. And it worked. And it worked. <laughs> and it worked very, very well. Did, was Howard the same as well, John Howard? Well, I think the politics was beginning to change. So after Menzies, you had that remarkable period when the country was fairly stable. You, But again, you get lots of intrigue, lots of chaos. You know, there's this tendency to look back in time and think, oh, there was a golden era. But if you read the diaries of his colleagues, like Peter Howson, you see that they were living day to day amidst chaos, right? It's only when you look back in a long sweep of things that you can so you get the impression that things sailed along smoothly, whereas at the time it was pretty chaotic because of the nature of politics, and particularly Australian politics, which is a blood sport, uh, because politicians are not thinking in terms of the national interest, it's only self-interest. And it's always about their own personal advancement. So in the case you ask about John Howard, he was a person who was able to bounce back from a political grave, became prime minister, um, and managed to remain in office because he was such a shrewd operator. You know, he was destined to lose the election, that the second election that he had had as prime minister, um, because of the introduction of the GST. Every government that's introduced a GST or a VAT seems to have lost if you look at the experience in Europe, in, in Canada, the entire government not only went, but all the members of Parliament except for three of them were, all, were wiped out. Howard was destined for the same thing, but along you get the Tampa and the asylum seeker issue, and he's able to play the fear card. Uh, now, we don't have a problem with asylum seekers in this country, 
but the media can whip the thing up. The reason we're so precise about the number of asylum seekers in Australia is that the number is so small. We count them individually. Whereas you had a million people moving from Syria into Germany. So we're surrounded by a giant moat. But nonetheless, you can play to the fears of people. And John Howard was just brilliant as that type of prime minister. I think, by the way, if John Howard had been re-elected in 2007, we'd now have a a clearer climate change policy because John Howard would have seen how popular climate change was as a policy, although he didn't necessarily agree with it, but he would have said, well, if I'm going to win again in 2010, I need to have a climate change policy. Instead, of course, uh, he lost the election and then we have climate change introduced by Kevin Rudd, who makes a mess of it. The conglomerate that was originally set up with state lines, you mentioned earlier, New South Wales, Queensland had different ideals and and still do to this day, especially (laughs) around sport. And it's quite odd that even Australia is divided in half almost with its big sporting codes that are played in the winter. But politically, how long did that take to dissipate? And are some of the fractures still evident today in Australian politics or is that all gone? No, uh, I think there are still some fractures. A prime minister needs to be able to balance his or her cabinet by appointments from all the states and territories. So it's very risky to neglect a state. Those states and territory boundaries are still important in that respect. But I do think overall that there is a sense of national identity in this country that, oh, okay, we joke between New South Wales, Queensland, etc. But at the end of the day, everybody sees themselves as Australian. And this is one of the advantages of Australia and the same with the United States. As distinct from a, a society which has no traditional democracy, and I'm thinking particularly the Arab world, there's virtually no democracy in any of the Arab territories, 22 of them. That's because it's so tribal. People see their loyalty to the immediate tribe and that's where the patronage comes from. That's how they get ahead, through keeping within the tribe. In Australia, we do have a sense of national identity and so that's, I think, one of the reasons why Australia has been able to flourish because we do have this strong sense of of national identity and national unity. Sure, we we argue over sport, etc., but at the end of the day, we are Australian and so that is very important. But at the same time, a politician will need to know they've got to balance things out. They, they shouldn't play one state off against the other and instead you try to keep everybody on side. Keith, the Constitution, which came into effect in 1901, it's the, the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Australia, that's the official name, we'll just call it the Constitution, but it explains the composition of Australian Parliament, the, the rules for Parliament, what powers it has. Over the journey, has this been meddled with in any way or should it be meddled with in any way? <laughs> I, I carry a copy of the Constitution around with me. Most Australians have never read it. Now, when we had the Republic in 1999, every household was sent a copy of the Constitution. Yes, remember it. You remember it. Didn't read it. You didn't read it, exactly. Nope. (laughs) Like most other Australians, they've just simply thrown away, Mm. which is just as well because if you do try to read it, it won't make any sense. (laughs) Because there's no reference to the Prime Minister. It's in English, isn't it? It is in English, but it's an English that suggests that Queen Victoria is running the country. No mention of the Prime Minister, no mention of a cabinet, right? So this has evolved outside of the Constitution. How? What's the way the British operate, right? So the British don't have a written Constitution at all. 
But there is an English constitution yeah. and it evolves over the years. That's very different from America. Don't forget, two-thirds of all the world's lawyers live in the United States. So the American constitution is very much a sacred document uh, and Americans, you know, are As we familiar found out with the gun it. laws and everything. Exactly. Yeah, not touching them. Whereas in Australia, the constitution is, does not read very well. And, we, and I was involved in a campaign around the time of the, the 1999 referendum. We're calling for a, a general overhaul of the entire document. For example, it's not clear who has power over the environment. We have all of these disputes from time to time, which end up in the, uh, the high court. What we need is really a document perhaps which is suitable for this era. Problem is, I'm not sure you'd get it because it'll have to go to a referendum. And remember, we always vote no in referenda. <laughs> Why is that? Just because we're, we're happy with our way of life and it's just comfortable to do <laughs> it that way? I think way. it's comfortable. Want it's easier to vote no than it is yes. Australians will moan all the time, but when they get opportunities to bring changes about, they don't. Yeah. I was, for example, involved with the local government association in the campaign to have local government recognised in this constitution. It's not recognised. When the Howard government introduced a very good program called Roads to Recovery, which is the financing of roads, 80% of roads in Australia are governed by local government. So the Commonwealth has to send money down to the state and hope the state will give it down to the local government. John Howard came up with this brilliant idea of just giving it straight to local governments. That's the Roads Recovery Program. That was challenged in the High Court. By the states. By, by, in fact, a lawyer who said, well, that's not, the local government isn't mentioned in the Constitution. You have no right to deal directly with local government. So that's obviously an area that needs to be changed. I was involved with the campaign to get the constitution amended for local government. We didn't even get far enough for a vote to be held on it. So with the constitution then, so what the political system and day-to-day -day political life in Australia exists alongside the constitution, under it, or just ignores it? I think you're right when you talk about going alongside it. Obviously, you've got to be careful that what you do is not unconstitutional. You've got to avoid, you know, you've got to stick within the law. But the law is so vague and, you, and you've had conventions, in other words, habits that are built up over the decades and that has enabled Australia to thrive. So they're not in bed with each other, they just know each other in they, terms of yeah, politics and constitution. <laughs> they're, they're not spending every night to, with each other, they that's don't depend very, on each other. That's a very good way of putting it, yeah. I find that weird. I find that like we're not beholden to, and our, our political system isn't beholden to just this steadfast little booklet that you have right there in your hand. It's only a little booklet. It's, it looks like a little a mini race book, if, if you like, from the racetrack. Well, but the printing is very small. Yeah, it's the a, copy that was sent out to you in 1999 was much larger, but obviously you still didn't bother to, to read it. Um, yeah, it's a document, as I say. It doesn't refer to the Prime Minister. It doesn't refer to Cabinet. So what we've had to do is to develop our own habits of government alongside the Constitution. And how long did those habits take to form after oh, the Constitution came to being? Oh, almost from the very beginning. Yeah, they just said, we're going to yeah. do this. Yeah, we're going to have, we, we need to have a Prime Minister. Yeah. Yeah. Do you reckon we need to have a Prime Minister? Oh, yeah, you've got to have a head of government. Yeah. And what we do in Australia, as distinct from the United States, is to have a head of government and a head of state. So in the United States, they, in my view, made a mistake in 1787 with their Constitution. They put the President in with the Prime Minister. So, so they've got head person. of state, head of government. What we do is to separate it out. So the head of state represents all that's good, noble and true about the country. 
So the Queen or the Governor-General or state governors turn up at national tragedies, and they express the regret on behalf of their people. The Prime Minister, by contrast, is the cheap, shoddy, nasty politician that you can dispense with. Right? The problem for the Americans is that they sometimes want to sack their prime minister, but they'll be damaging the presidency. So if you think about the Nixon scandal over Watergate, Clinton over Monica Lewinsky, in both cases, they wanted to get rid of the cheap, shoddy, nasty politician. But they're also aware that the president at that time represented all that was good, noble and true in the United States. We don't have that problem. We've separated out those two roles. And I think that the British or Australian, New Zealand system is better than the American one. Because the Governor-General, who is the appointee of the Queen, who is the head of state, doesn't get involved at all politically. He or she doesn't touch it. Exactly. And that's a good way to go. So they represent all that's best in Australia. And the Prime Minister is essentially the CEO of the thing and runs the country like a business. Well, I should do. They don't always have much success at doing that. Remember, Turnbull tried to run it as a business and failed because clearly my view is that we would not run a company in the way that we run a country. So a country is governed by politicians who bounce from one headline to the next. So the media play an important role within... a a political system like Australia's. They help set the pace of things. They don't tell us what to think, but they do tell us what to think about. And they will focus on a particular issue and that will dominate the headlines for a day. Now, companies, hopefully, are not bouncing from one headline to the next. They're taking a longer-term view. One of the worries I've got about Australian politics and politics generally in the Western world is the short-termism that we do not get enough attention paid to the future issues. Likewise, yeah. Over time, as Australia has got used to its own political system, have people always voted along party lines or have they voted along personality lines, i.e. they're voting for the politician, not the party they represent? What is interesting is the breakdown of the party system. When you think back 30 years ago, 10% of Australians were in a political party. Now it's about 1%. Um, so we have very weak political parties and weak political loyalty. Although it is interesting, people still tend to vote either Labour or Liberal or Liberal National Party. Is that just a comfort thing? I think they do it out of flying on autopilot. But you also do get ri- of the rise of the floating voter now. But most constituencies are decided before an election. Suddenly you get upsets in by-elections when... Uh, Local voters get a bit awkward. But generally speaking, people tend to vote along party lines. They will pay attention to the individuals who run them because it's the presidential system of reporting. But at the same time, when people get to the polling booth, they will tend to go one way or the other, as they've done in the past. The big change has been traditionally, it was the father who decided how the family would vote. Ain't the case now, let me tell you. Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, the, the mother and the children want to make their own decisions. We've got the ability to be a lot more knowledgeable about your choice depending on where you look. Absolutely. So overall, would you say the system we have is the right system for Australia in this day and age? Yes. And the reason I would say that is because it doesn't do much damage. We have real problems, and I don't think they can be solved through a parliamentary system. But we have a booming economy... We have a great standard of living. Australia is is regards as one of the best places to live. So we've got a lot going for us. And the parliamentary system 
helps to keep that on an even keel. It's not the secret of Australia's wealth. Politicians would like to give you the impression that they are the responsible for Australia's wealth. That is simply not true. The best thing a politician can do is to get out of the way and let others go ahead to make the wealth. We're, we're blessed with an educated population, politically a stable society. We have compulsory voting, which stops the sort of extremism that you see in the United States on one end or the other. We have lots of natural resources. We don't have too many immediate enemies surrounding us, very different from, say, if you're in Israel in the Middle East when you've got 400 million Arabs trying to push you into the Mediterranean. We've got a lot of things going for us. And I would love to see more attention given to the positives of Australian society and just treat the politicians as a branch of the television entertainment industry. Politics is show business for ugly people. I'm not going to bring that up with the guests that I'm going to have coming up over the next 20 or so episodes, but I might give it a mention along the lines of, of showbiz. You mentioned that politicians seem to want to get in the way all the time and it's their own ego, it seems, that wants to get in the way. What's their own beliefs that they've had drummed into them that they're trying to extol the virtues of in society when really it's just... You know, just push the nation in the right way and just help it along its way. Well, the nature of politics has changed, right? So someone like Robert Menzies would spend all his life aiming to become prime minister. Now, increasingly, politics is for younger people and uh, being uh, within government or at least being a member of parliament or centre is a stepping stone to something else. So while you're in parliament, you're always thinking, what am I going to do next? Um, so will I end up as a director of a company, for example? Where, how do I leverage off this position? So you've got to change there, and even the composition of the parties themselves. So you now get smart young graduates who go straight from university, either into research jobs in the Liberal Party or into trade union positions within the Labor Party, and they work their way up through the system. Very little experience of outside life. And they then go into politics, but then politics is a stepping stone to something else. So it's a different sort of situation from what we would have had back, say, in the Menzies era. In actual fact, we're going to get 20, 30 years down the track and think, that was actually a really good time in Australian history. Politically stable. Absolutely, yep. I think that um, this is the best time to become a millionaire because I think that... um, Wish wish I knew how. (laughs) As we roll on into the future, when we've got the issues that of, say, information technology, robotics, and issues of it, climate change, water scarcity, food issues, etc. cetera. Um, I think that Australia will start to run out of its luck. And it's interesting that the recent PricewaterhouseCoopers report, looking at the world in 2050, sees the biggest decline of all the countries in the developed world being that of Australia. So at the moment, we're near the top of the list and we go down to, um, oh, what are we? I think about 25. Indonesia, by the way, goes right up the top of the list. So we're going to have to learn to live with Indonesia as a dominant neighbouring partner. So these are major challenges that we do face. So my view is that you have to make the most of today because we just don't know what tomorrow is going to be like. But this is, I think when we do look back, we will be seen as a golden era you know, the longest consecutive period of economic growth in the Western world since 1750. That's a tremendous achievement. It is. It absolutely is. I just want to change your line, though, about making the most of today because tomorrow you don't know who the Prime Minister is going to be. Exactly. <laughs> Overall, though, one last one. Is Australian politics in good shape or does it need a bit of uh, remedial work? 
oh, I think you could always do with more remedial work. But if you take a different set of criteria, if you look at it and say, oh, isn't it chaotic? It's always been chaotic, right? The end of the day is how does the average Australian go? Unfortunately, the average Australian keeps thinking that they're losing, whereas in fact they're gaining. You know, I always say to Australians, if you think it's rough in Australia, go to Africa, go to the Middle East. Go to the United States. South even. America. Yeah, and, and just see what life is like there. So Australia is doing well, and the political system, okay, not perfect, but it's something that we can live with, providing the politicians don't try to get too active and too involved in things. And remember, they don't run the big picture anymore. They micromanage, so they look after playground safety or things like that as part of their ballywick. They're not in charge of the economy itself. Others do that, such as the corporations and the banks. Well, that's what I'm going to try and do is cut through the BS that's out there about <laughs> politics in Australia and give a little more clarity in my own mind as much as anything to what exactly is going on. Dr Keith Suter, thank you for your time. Thank you. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.